Who has already been on their summer holiday? Show of hands. So, yeah, quite a few. Uh, who is still to go on their summer holiday? Talk to a few. Yes, uh, I know sometimes the summer could be removed from that in some cases, but yeah, that's fine. Uh, is there anyone here who is here today on their summer holiday? Yeah. Okay, right, okay, fair, fair enough. Last time I did that, last night it was um, so Pete Halford appeared at the back. So he's come over from Dubai. Some of you know Pete, uh, so that's good. Um, the, the Mellor family have just uh, a week ago come back from our, our holiday. And over the last couple of years, we've... Uh, we, we tended to go away for two weeks separate and we put them together uh, because we, we quite like it that way. <laughs> you kind of wind down on the first week and the second week you actually get to have a holiday, well, which is quite nice. And one of the things that happens having for, for, for me personally when we have a break uh, like that, that's more substantial, is just naturally, I don't mean to do it, it just becomes a bit of a time of reflection on the year that's gone by because it's kind of a very firm break in your year. Maybe from my, um, my teaching background, where obviously... Summer is the break in the year. Uh, so as I was coming up to the holiday, started to think back on the year that's gone before, thinking, has this been a good year or has this been a bad year? And uh, to, as, I, as I was starting to do that uh, this time around, uh, I was very happy to reflect on the fact, you know what, this year's been a good year. I've, I've had a good year this year. So just kind of a week before going away, thinking, yeah, you know what, just reflecting. This, is, this has been all right. And in many ways, it would have been a year of, of receiving for, the, for me and for the Mellor family. We've, we would have had a, received a number of significant answered prayers, I, I, I think, this year in, in our close family, in our, in our wider family too. Um, also in the church here, I'd say, we've had a year of receiving, receiving tokens of God's grace in, in different ways. It's been a year for, to use the Christian language. It's been a year of blessing, receiving blessings from God. And as I was thinking that, I, I, I reflected again on how different that was actually to the same time last year <laughs> when I went on holiday. Well, if I remember rightly, I, I limped, I think our whole family limped our way to the summer holiday 2016 because we looked back on a very different year that year, which wouldn't have been such a year of receiving, would be more of a year of, I think, giving would have been, <laughs> been fair without getting a whole lot in, in return. In, in some sense, I, not going too much into it, but early 2016 was a tough time for, for our family, uh, both from family stuff. I think as a church as well, um, so some of you would be aware of that, we, we, we we had some struggles uh, at that sort of time. And so contrasting the two sort of things, I was thinking back at a year this year, a year of receiving, even often where I hadn't given out very much. Okay? And then I look back at another year, the year before, a year of giving out lots without receiving a whole lot back. And it might go without saying to you then, I could, I could look at those years and say, oh, right, this year I've had a good year. Last year, that wasn't such. That was a tough year. That was a bad year in some senses. So that's what I'm thinking as I'm going into my holiday. I had to get a few admin things out of the way before I uh, went away. For example, a sermon to preach when I got back. And so as I came to um, Acts uh, 20, sorry if I'm a, a week ahead, uh, chapter ahead this week, but uh, Acts 20, I was hit, what I'm preaching about, this quote from Jesus, uh, which hit me between the eyes really, uh, that we'll see in the passage today. It is more blessed to give than to receive, okay? It is more blessed to give uh, than to receive. Now, um, I think that's a kind of statement that whether you've heard that before or not, that's not a surprise to you. That would be the kind of thing a sermon at church would be on. Uh, That's the kind of thing Jesus says, that sort of stuff, okay? Um, 
But I want us to really let that sink into our spirits today because that's not just some platitude right there. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That is a radical, radical statement that we've got to come to grips with. Okay, just to make it clear. What Jesus is not saying in this statement is it is a more moral thing to give than to receive. That God's a bit more pleased when you give stuff than when you get stuff. No, what he's saying is it is more of a blessing to me When I give to others, than it is to me when I receive things. And the same would be for you. The message translation puts it more bluntly like this. And I think really captures the spirit of what Jesus is saying. It says, you're far happier giving than getting. Just think about that for a second. That's settle in. It's the kind of thing if you say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But think about that. What's your knee-jerk response to that? My my knee-jerk response to that is, you know what? I was much happier going on holiday this year than I was last year. (laughs) I was much happier after a year of of receiving than I was after a a year of giving. And uh, I'm not presenting myself as a model as we go through this message. Because I don't think I'm very good at this stuff, if I'm being honest uh, with you. And some of you will be much more naturally uh, kind and generous than me. But I would imagine that uh, however happy you are with giving, for all of us, there'd be areas of your life when we reflect that actually there's a mismatch between our experience and between Jesus' wisdom here. I want to flag that right at the start. So it could be for you uh, something silly like at Christmas when you're opening your Christmas presents and you start to clock, wait a minute, how much have they spent on me and how much have I spent on them? I think I'm getting a raw deal here. Obviously no, no one would do that, okay? But you know, maybe that's for, for some hypothetical person that could be you. could be in a friendship that you have where you figure uh, that you're investing more in that friend than they're giving back to you. What do you do in those sort of situations? Does that fill your heart with joy and laughter? could be in your marriage when you've given your spouse a, a lie-in for the last two weeks and Saturday morning comes, uh, last two weekends, Saturday morning comes and uh, crack a door and the kid wake up, you get the nudge in the <laughs> ribs, you're up again. Not speaking from experience. Gemma told me that one. Um, could be in the church community. In my short time in kind of full-time Christian ministry, uh, it will probably come as no surprise that I've never had anyone coming to me so annoyed that they've received from the church more than they could possibly give back. <laughs> I've never had someone go, it's just outrageous. This church keeps giving and giving and giving. How am I supposed to keep up with this and give back more? It's, just, it's no surprise. It will probably be no surprise to also hear that I would have heard the opposite quite a bit. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that to have a go because I do exactly the same thing. This is a really tricky and hard thing for us that Jesus is saying, although pithy as it may be. And I want us to to look today at the passage where it appears. It's Acts 20, uh, 17 to 38. Uh, Acts 20, 17 to 38. And I want to ask two questions. I want to ask, because this whole passage really leads up to this verse uh, and this phrase of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And I want to ask, what does this principle look like in practice? We'll see that very clearly laid out by Paul's example in the passage. And then at the end, how can we then live it out? Which is a huge question when we see the challenge of this, uh, of this um, example of Paul and this teaching of Jesus. And what I'd really like to do, I guess, is, is turn this statement of Jesus from what for many of us I think it would have been an acute meme for example there we go look at that that's how I've often seen this verse right that's making my me shudder slightly <laughs> so let's get rid of that <laughs> okay I want to turn it from that into an actual radical banner of living that we can put over our lives it's completely foreign to anything out there and actually strikes against in many ways the heart of what it is to be a fallen human being 
okay? Not to raise the stakes too high. Okay, Acts 20, 17 to 38. Let's see what, uh, how the story continues. This is what it says. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions in everything I did. I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Now, as a church, we've been going through the book of Acts uh, for the last while, and uh, some of you will, the context of this will come very quickly to mind, but let's get everyone on the same page. What's happening here? Well, Paul has been going around for the last few years, at least, uh, planting churches in different areas. He's been going around the area outside of uh, what we now call Israel, uh, places like Syria, what we call now Syria, Turkey, and into Europe as well. He's planting churches. He's going around and revisiting those churches. He's, He's telling people about the message of Jesus. He's strengthening uh, the new churches uh, that are there. And his, his uh, kind of modus operandi, the way he often goes, is he'll pop into a place for a, a, quite a short period of time sometimes, sometimes by choice, sometimes because that's how it works. Actually, it's driven out. But he, he kind of finds a few people, they've, they've come to follow Jesus. He goes, right, I've got to go, usually chased by the law. And like, he's like, but you guys live this out. I'll come back and see you later. And so he pops around, sometimes a month, sometimes a couple of months, uh, different places. Ephesus is different though. In Ephesus, these guys, Ephesian church leaders he's talking to here, uh, these guys are from the church that is probably the church he spent most time with uh, in the book of Acts uh, as regards on his travels, on his missionary uh, journeys. He spent at least three years with these guys and these guys have a history with him. They're not people who just know Paul the preacher, they've known Paul the the man. And uh, they've been on adventures. They've had lots of ups. They've had lots of downs. And what happens is he's left Ephesus. Uh, He's been been there a few times, but he's left there a a kind of a few verses before this. And he goes off. He's doing a route round. He's going to go to Jerusalem eventually. And he realizes as he's going, wait a minute, 
I don't think I'm going to get to go back to Ephesus again. I don't think I'm going to see my friends uh, ever again who are from Ephesus. And so what he does is he takes a rather unusual step. He stops off at a place called Miletus, which is near, uh, as you can see it, probably see it there. It's kind of in the middle. Um, and he says, look, to, he sends a message to the Ephesian church leaders. He says, look, come over to Miletus. I need to speak to you. I can't come to Ephesus, but I'm on my street, so I need to speak to you. And they do, they all come over, and he delivers them essentially his farewell message, his goodbye to the leaders of the Ephesian church. And we see what he says to them. So let's look, well, what does he say? Well, his first statement, I think, summarizes where he's going to go. He starts this. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. Might sound like a... He's a simple star, but just, just think about that for a moment. That sums up all that's going to happen after. He's going to be telling them, look, what's my farewell message? Well, what do you want to leave with you? I want you to leave. Remember how I lived with you. And, and that's surprising for a number of reasons. Because, you see, he could have said a number of other things that we would have been seen much more kind of spiritual or in some cases would have seen quite useful for them. He could have started like this. He could have said, you know how I planted this church here? Because he did. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you how to plant other churches. That's what I want to leave with you. Is that skill there? He could have done that. Uh, that would have been completely reasonable. He could have said even more likely. He could have said, "You know how I did some pretty incredible miracles here with you." So he talks in Acts 19 about the miracles he did in Ephesus. It says that he did such great miracles that people would get handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him, and they would take them to sick people, and the sick people would get better. That's pretty amazing. Like, if you've done stuff like that, you might stop and go, remember that stuff? Yeah, pretty impressive. Everyone talking about that. I want to tell you, I want to leave you. Step out in faith like that. I want to leave you some advice on how to do things like that. doesn't do that. He, um, he could have said, you know how I communicated the message of Jesus to those who didn't know him with you? I want to just tell you, just remember, keep going. Keep doing that. Like, that's, that's, that, I want to give you some tips, and then I'm going to go. Okay? says, Luke, Luke writes in Acts 19 that through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, okay, he says that, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty impressive, okay? Asia not quite seen like we see it nowadays, but still, all the Jews and Greeks in the whole province heard the word of the Lord. This is an impressive ministry Paul's done. He could easily have said that. He doesn't. He says, remember how I lived among you. You've seen how I lived. For, for us, just to, to reflect, when we die... You know what? We want to live such lives that we can say to people, you know what? You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. That's what I lived. When you think of me, think about how I lived. Each day, my attitude, how I responded in different situations. Our lives are not just a sequence of achievements or projects. No, no, we want to leave them our lives. And that's what Paul leaves them here. And so how did he live? That's what we're going to look at, but as a summary, verse 19 gives us a kind of, kind of points to the way he, he gave himself for the Ephesians. That's how he lived with them. He gave himself for them. Verse 19, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. What are these tears? Was it just he didn't like the temperature, the, the climate in Ephesus? I hate the food. It's awful. I cried myself to sleep every night. No. Uh, in verse 31 explains about the tears. He, he says more about this. He says, For three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And you see the... The tears are about emotional attachment to these guys. In his time in Ephesus, he cared about these people and he gave himself for them practically and also emotionally. Okay? That's what his life was. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at how that works. Okay? He actually gave. How did he give? He gave without any view of receiving. It's 
better to give, more blessed to give than to receive, you see. Um, but before we look at that concretely, I think there's one other thing we need to get straight about how Paul lived among the Ephesians that we've got to get right or this can all go askew rather quickly. And that was, it's important to know that while he gave himself for these guys, for these people, he wasn't motivated primarily by a desire to serve them, actually. What was his primary motivation? Actually, his primary motivation was not serving people, although he did serve people, it was serving God. Verse 24, he comes absolutely clean on this one. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus uh, has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Wow. But Paul's not driven by some sense of altruism or humanitarianism here. How does he live? He lives to fulfill the task that God's given him. And the task that God's given him is to serve the Ephesians. And so that's what he does. Now, I don't don't know how that hits you. That might sound a little kind of kind of almost manipulative. Like if you serve people, you, you want to serve them. Don't you? It's not for another reason. You might think if your reason is something else apart from just loving people, if you have a higher motivation, that's not really love. You, you, you'll end up, you won't serve people as well. But actually, that's not the case at all. Paul understood something very, very important here that we've got to get this the right way around as well. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind. And then love your neighbor. Okay, it might sound like, well, you know, but it doesn't really matter which order those go in. No, it, it really does matter <laughs> which order those go in. And for Paul, it was, I want to complete the task, and so I'm going to serve you. And you might think, well, how does that work? Well, why is it that if you love God with your heart, if you aim to serve God and follow the calling God's given you, why will that lead to loving your neighbor? Well, well quite obviously, it's because God himself is love. And he gave a pretty startling demonstration of what it means to give yourself for other people. Actually, again, Paul refers to this in this passage. It's kind of in passing, but he mentions it in verse 28. He says to these Ephesian leaders, he says, Be shepherds of the church of God. Why? Why why should we bother putting ourselves out for these pesky sheep? When he says this, the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. (laughs) It's how valuable they Why should I bother serving this lot? Why should I bother helping my friend here? Why should I bother doing this? Which God bought with his own blood. That's how valuable they are, okay? That's the price that was paid for them. Slightly better translation of that verse would be, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with the blood of his own. You might think, oh wait, there's a word missing there. No, they left it, they, we're meant to work that one out. It's, 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 it's his own, or what is it? His own, his own son. When we see Jesus on the cross, and we see, who is Jesus? He's obviously the Son of God, isn't he? And in that image, we see all sorts of, that image is so rich. But when we see the Son of God being given to us, one of the reasons that image is so powerful is because it communicates the cost that it was to the Father to give his Son. Because what could be more precious to someone than their own child? What could be more precious to someone than their only child? These people were bought with the blood of his own son. God is leading the way regarding loving your neighbor. He produced an act of love none of us could ever match in any way. Why did he do it? Well, he did it so that he could offer each of us uh, the opportunity to not perish, but to have eternal life. That was why he went to those sort of lengths. And how you accept that offer 
is by believing in Jesus. John 3.16 makes that very clear. If you believe in Jesus, you won't perish. He gave his own son for us so that we would not perish but have eternal life if we believe in Jesus. And that means by trusting Jesus uh, with your life. And that offer is open to all of us today. And if, if you've never taken that offer to trust Jesus, to believe in Jesus, I would urge you to consider that very, very carefully this morning. That's an offer, just to, to show you what that means. It's an offer to be forgiven of all you've done wrong. Okay, it's an offer uh, to be restored into friendship with your creator. It's an offer to join God on the adventure of uh, winning back the entire world to righteousness, to truth, <laughs> and to love. Oh, that's a pretty formidable offer. It's open to all of us. But it cost him incredibly dear. In, sense, in a sense, it cost him as much as it could have cost him. I put forward that you cannot love a God like that without catching something of his heart and therefore giving yourself similarly for others. So I want to encourage you at the start, this is Paul's, he's very clear about this and we need to get things the right way around. What, what do we call to? We want to complete the task that God's given us today. This message today will, will not be based upon uh, your natural tendency towards empathy, Okay. Some of you would be very high on that. Some of you would be very low on that. Okay? That's not what this talk's based on. There's a, there's a solemn call from God here that says, I have a task as your creator for each of you. And actually the task that can be summarized is you love God, love those around you, give yourselves for those around you. If you're not a Christian here today and you listen to this and think, you know what, this is hard, but I long to live like this. I want to live a giving life like this. You know what? I'd encourage you, come to that God. He gave his son for us. He's got wisdom, but he also gives us power to change as we'll look at later. Okay? So with all that said then, uh, what does loving your neighbor look like for Paul? To use the language we've uh, used so far, what does uh, giving yourself for others look like? Well, it, it looks like basically, in summary, it is giving but not looking to receive in return. And we see that in four ways in which Paul lived this out. And I want to just rattle through them quickly to present us with a concrete example of what this looks like. And I don't know about you, but I find this incredibly challenging, okay? Because we see it from Paul here, okay? First thing is this. Paul gives himself, but he doesn't give himself to receive praise is the first thing uh, we see. We see in two verses, Verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. By saying I have not hesitated, what he means is there was a temptation to hold back here. I, I kind of, I was thinking, oh, should I should say this, I thought, mm, I should probably not. And he said, no, I pushed, I didn't hesitate to preach anything that would be helpful to you. Verse 27, exactly the same phrase. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Why would he hesitate? Why, why was there that temptation, that kind of, oh, should I say this? Mm, should I soften it a bit? Well, surely it's because he knew that the things he needed to say would not receive the praise of the people he was talking to. Surely that's it. He realized, like, I've got some difficult things to say. They, they will be helpful, and God wants me to say them, but they're not going to get me a pat on the back. They're not going to get me a, a text in the week saying, oh, great sermon, Paul, you did a great job. This isn't going to win me any favor. This isn't going to win me any praise or popularity. But he wasn't in it for that. That's, the whole point. That's why he didn't hesitate, pushed through, because he's giving out, and it's not about praise. It's not about receiving that back. He's giving to give. That's what he's called to do. Living as Jesus intends for Paul and for us doesn't involve giving yourself with the bargain that we will receive praise back at the end of it. First thing. Second thing, Paul gives himself, but he doesn't give himself to receive comfort either. 
Verse 19, we've seen it. Uh, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. In Ephesus, when he told them this, they knew how he'd lived there and they knew he'd had a tough time in some ways. He'd had a really difficult deal. He wasn't living for comfort. They knew that. But also, he wasn't retiring and going off to a beach in Crete or something now, okay? He makes that clear in verse 23. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Think about this for a second. Let's imagine uh, you've got a job offer, okay? A new job offer, and you're really thinking about it, and you're really praying about it, okay? And uh, as you're praying, suddenly you get that moment, okay, where it's like the heavens open, and God speaks up, and it's like the Holy Spirit, it's like whisper, he's whispering in your ear and he says this, if you take that job, you will be humiliated, disgraced and put in prison. Now if, I, if it happened to me and uh, I, I went to uh, my life group that week and said, oh, God spoke to you, yeah God told me something, I would paraphrase it like this, do not take the job. <laughs> that's how I would hear that information. Well of course God didn't quite say that but that's what he meant because yeah, disgrace, humiliation, prison okay that's how it goes isn't it really odd if you go forward a chapter that's exactly how Paul's friends take this information he goes to Tyre uh, and he goes to Caesarea and they also feel the Holy Spirit saying exactly the same to them they resonate to them and so they say to Paul well obviously then Paul do not go just don't go I mean a prophet even comes and ties him up and says if you go this will happen don't go and you see this strange thing where Paul is just totally on a different page he's like what He's completely nonplussed. It's, it's as if Paul's saying to him, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I don't get it. Of course God is telling me I'll suffer if I go to these places, if I go to Jerusalem. Of course he is. And that's really helpful to me, you know. That prepares me for, for what's ahead and I can kind of get ready for that. But guys, you've got to understand this. I'm not doing this for my comfort or my emotional well-being. You read some of what Paul gets up to. That's quite obvious about Paul, okay? No, that's not how he lives. So, guys, that's not how I live. My, my giving doesn't come out of an expectation to receive. I don't, I don't do it to receive praise. I, and I certainly don't do it to receive comfort. See, the Holy Spirit said hardships, prison, and that means pack your bags, Paul. Incredible challenge. He understood at heart. How do you do something like this? There's lots of things going on in Paul, but one of the things he understood, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Third thing, he also didn't expect to receive money for his giving out. The most literal, I think, uh, application of this principle. Verse 33 and 34 says this, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In the three years, Paul was in Ephesus, just to be clear with you. He, with all the hard work he did, building this church, starting up, getting it going, doing all this mission work, etc., etc., he never once claimed a penny from the Ephesian Christians. He refused to take a salary. That's, again, that's pretty, you know, there's a challenge there. It's a challenge for me as a church worker who takes a salary from, uh, from you guys. <laughs> okay, there's a challenge for me. Is it Paul saying then that this is the model for Christian ministry? Well, strangely, maybe not, not strangely, but he's definitely not saying that. He makes that very clear elsewhere. But he's making a point here. I'll explain what I mean. 1 Corinthians 9, 10 to 12. I'll read it to you. You can turn to it if you, if you want. I'm going to be quick on this one. But he makes this very, very clear. It, agricultural imagery exudes from this passage. And as I've just been in a slightly more countrified environment than here, I'm, I, you know, I feel like I'm one with nature. But for you urbanites, just get ready for agriculture. Okay? I think you'll get it. Okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 10 to 12. He says, Whoever plows and threshes 
the reshes, should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? So he's saying, look, we have a right to receive money from you for this stuff we do. He's saying, look, we should be paid back for what we do. Just as if you're a freelancer here, uh, you, you, don't, you, you, you can charge a fair price for your work. I hope you, hope you know that. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. If you're in construction, you've got no obligation to do jobs for free to your mates or for people in the church or stuff like that. And that's how it goes. And what Paul's saying is, well, as, at least as much as that, the Christian minister has a right to claim uh, money for what they do. But then he goes on and he says this, but we did not use this right. So in Corinth, it's exactly the same as in Ephesus. We don't use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying, I could very, very fairly have asked the Ephesian church and the Corinthian church to pay me for what I did. But why didn't he? Well, there's probably a few reasons, but one of the reasons we see implicitly in this passage is he felt the message of this farewell talk to the Ephesian leaders, the message of this talk this morning, was so important, he wanted to model it literally to them by saying, I am going to give to you without receiving in the most literal sense I possibly could to impress on you this is how we live our lives in every aspect. Which moves us on to the final way in which Paul lived this out. And uh, just as he didn't give to get back comfort or praise or money, he also doesn't give to people who can pay him back anyway. (laughs) which kind of makes that a little easier, I suppose. Verse 35, or harder, probably. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. We must help the weak. The example he was modeling was not just giving not to receive. It was giving specifically to those who couldn't give anything to him anyway. If you go about helping the strong, by the strong, just to be clear, I don't mean Popeye. I don't mean kind of muscles. I mean the strongest in the clever or the influential or the rich or those with social status. If you go out to give to those sort of people, it doesn't matter how many times you say, I don't want anything back, you will receive stuff back, okay? <laughs> it is the general etiquette among the strong that they, you repay people in certain ways. And it might just be in kind of stimulating conversation. Uh, it could be in a, a, an invite round for a nice dinner, could even be a free holiday here or there or a gift of some sort. But if you serve the strong, you will receive stuff back. You, you, it doesn't really matter how much you say. I don't want anything. That's just how it works with the strong. When you help the weak, that just simply doesn't happen. I, I, I would hope that everything I've said up to this point would be challenging but helpful to us as, as people, as individuals, and as a church. But this point here, I really feel there's a call for us as a church on this, I think God, this is for us as a church, God's really impressing this on us at the moment. Um, because, just to rewind slightly, as Church Central, we've served across the board in Birmingham, we haven't been picky, we've not said we want to serve this demographic or this age of person or anything like that, we've never said that, we said we just want to serve, you know, that's how it goes across the board in our city. Um, but it would be fair to say that over the last 20 years, those who we've gathered into our church community on the whole, traditionally, would have been those who, by worldly standards, would have been, could have been called strong. I think that's 
probably a fair comment if we look demographically from the start of Church Central. By strong, I mean educated people, employable people, healthy people, people from stable backgrounds. Now, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying everyone in the church has that. Some of you think, oh, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but I think generally, I think there's a social strength about the demographic of this church, which is not normal in British society in some ways. But I, I want us to be fully aware, and you're probably aware of this. I've said traditionally a number of times. Now, that is changing. And I think the fact that we have three different sites, sometimes we miss this because we just see our site. But across Church Central now, we're meeting, reaching out to groups of people who haven't been part of the traditional demographic of Church Central before. Okay? And uh, some of those could fall under the category of what Paul's saying here as weak. Now, you might be thinking today, I, I've talked to a number of people like this, this before who've said, well, actually, I, I don't fit with any of those things. I'm not educated. I, I'm not necessarily very employable. I'm not healthy. I'm, I haven't got a stable upbringing. And I've talked to a number of people in the church who've come to me before and said, so I don't think I fit here. I don't really, I feel a bit like a fish out of water a bit. And maybe you could be feeling like that now. I want to be really clear with you. What I'm saying by this word weak here, I'm not saying in any sense that you're someone we kind of pat on the head, ah, poor you, or that you're somehow lesser than anybody else. No, it's it's very likely, if you would be like that, that that you have strengths that many of us would not have at all, maybe because of your situation. And actually, we're never in a situation as a church, we never want to be, where there's some people who are kind of the patrons and the others who are those who just sit and soak up stuff. That's not how it is. God gives us all gifts and he gives us all blessings of different sorts, you know, and we all feed and help each other with that stuff. However, I think when Paul's making this differential here, he's saying the weak, what he's saying is there are though people, there are some people in church who in the community will not be able to give back as much, at least in the short term, as other people in different ways. And Paul's saying, the reason I'm doing all of this stuff is primarily, I want you to serve them. I want you to give yourself for them. And we as a church, we would, we would regularly pray for people who would be, whose society would say are weak in this sort of way. I can think of three groups, uh, work with people who are struggling financially with debt, for example, with CAP. Uh, refugees that we work with through the Hope English uh, Club, even through Caris for elderly uh, and isolated members of society. And we would often pray, we'd put money into resources, say, God, add those people to us, bring them into our community. I want to be clear with you guys. Praying is one thing, but if, that, if God answers those prayers, we have to have settled something in our heart or it's going to be carnage. And that thing is this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because if that doesn't happen, this is what will happen. People will come in. This might happen now. I think there are shades of this in some of our sites now. Okay, where people come in for a while, you're like, brilliant, fantastic, God's on the move. And then a bit later, it's like, I'm doing loads here, and that person's doing nothing. On well, Sunday morning, I'm on this rotor, and then next week I'm on that rotor, and then I'm on that rotor as well. And I know that person, and they've got all sorts of time in the world, and they're not doing anything. And we start getting bitter, and we start kind of comparing, we start saying, who's giving more? Now, that doesn't lead to anything good for anyone. We need to either do one of two things. Settle it in our hearts. It's better to give than to receive. God help me, as we'll come to in a minute on that one. Or probably we need to stop praying for those things. Because I don't want to mess us up and other people up through those things. This is a huge challenge to us again. So let's wrap this up then. (laughs) Come to maybe the obvious question. How on earth are we supposed to live like this as we finish? Now, I'm sure, as I've said all along, that we find this example in different ways for us. In individual situations, we'll think, whoa, that's hard. 
But just as we, we close, just to make a point here, for me, I, I look at this, I find this hard. How do I do this in this situation? How do I do this here? But at no point am I saying, I'm not sure I'm, I think Jesus got this right. I think he might have, this might have been an off day <laughs> like here. I'm, I appreciate Jesus' wisdom here. I'm saying, yeah, he's right, and I know he's right. And I think even though we'd find this hard, I think all of us would have the sense, yes, he's onto something here. Because it might be that in an individual situation, you say, this is really difficult in the micro, but if we zoom out in the macro, we all see that he's right. And what I mean by that is this. When we die, surely all of us want to be remembered as those who gave more than they took. Wouldn't you? Would anyone like on, on their gravestone just to be leech? <laughs> I, I would assume that's a no. Okay, We don't want to be those kind of people. It could be at Christmas. That it's a little bit of a gripe if you think I've really thought through that person's presence and what have I got? Oh, socks, great, thanks for that. That might be a gripe for us. But even if that was a gripe for us, I don't think any of us on our deathbed want to think, ha ha, I hoodwinked them all. I, I've soaked up all their generosity and I've given nothing back in return. Good life, well done. We don't want to think like that. However countercultural this may be, However this irks with us when it plays out in different circumstances, I think we long to be like this. We all want to be people who give, who take joy in giving. How? I'm just going to summarize really two of the main points to leave them, underline them and with us that have been in between what we've said. First thing is this, there is a real value of keeping this sort of teaching at the forefront of your mind. And that's what I wanted to do today. I just wanted to raise it to you again. This is probably not entirely new to you, but I want to put it out from the back, from all the other stuff. Say, no, think of this. Keep this at the front of your mind. Because when you do that, um, what happens is it helps you to check your feelings when you start getting a bit annoyed. Okay? So maybe it's a, it is something silly like a birthday or Christmas, and you're thinking, oh, I've given more than me. Then you think, no, wait, stop. Friend of mine, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Fantastic. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. More likely and more importantly, it could be that feeling of frustration in a friendship. I'm giving more into this than I'm getting out and I'm starting to feel bitter and why are they doing this? Wait, stop. I remember it's more wisdom of God says it's more blessed to give than to receive. That checks your bitterness. You'll be getting cross with your spouse. And just so you know, I think every spouse ever has felt this before, that they are putting more into their marriage to their partner than they're getting out. And it, it kills you. If you do that, it kills you. And sometimes, in different ways, probably every spouse is right as well, in some ways, because we give and receive in different ways. But what we do, we start going, oh, I'm not doing this, and then I'm doing this, and they're not doing that. And, I'm not. and we stop and say, no, stop, wait a minute. I'm, I'm thinking this all wrong. I've got it muddled up. We're happier giving than we are getting. God, help me to do that, but I accept your wisdom on it. That's important. That helps us. Keep it at the forefront of your mind. But while that is useful, I'd say if that's all we do, the results are going to be temporary, and we might manage outward giving for a while, but inside we're probably going to get a little bit begrudging, I would have thought. There's something else, this is the last point um, we need to do, and it's been running through all that I've said really, is we keep it at the forefront of our minds, but then we go to God for his help, because he has to change us. It's on him or we can't do this. One of my... Um, my favorite songs at the moment is a song by a uh, Manchester band called uh, Everything Everything, who are uh, one of my favorite bands, actually. And they have a song that's, uh, this is just so you know, this isn't a niche Johnny Mellor song. This is a Radio 1 playlist. And I'm looking around, most of you moved on to two. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, so I know, I know. Yeah, but you listen to like Radio 7 or something, don't you, Andy? So, anyway. <laughs> but um, it, it's, uh, the song is called um, 
can't do, and you, if you know you heard it because it just repeats this phrase over and over again, which is, uh, I think it will flash up here, help me, I can't do the things you want. And it just repeats that for ages and ages and ages. Anyone heard this song? So my builders, I know this is, bi- bi- is a big song because my builders were playing it the other day in my house. So it's obviously on the radio. And uh, so keep an ear out for it because it's, it's kind of catchy and it keeps repeating. Now his, his story in the, in the story is he, he's talking about society's expectations on him. He's frustrated as a business about it. Kind of, you guys are asking too much of me. Now I'm not encouraging us towards that. <laughs> okay. However, I think that as a phrase, as a prayer, when we come to lots of things in the Bible, is absolutely spot on. And that's what I'd like to leave you with. Is, well, how do you respond? That prayer there will do it. God, help me. I cannot do these things you're asking me to do. And when it is, where it's different to the kind of bitterness that, and the kind of, this is unfair, why do you ask me these sort of things, is that actually as we come to God like that, he promises to come and help us. You, you've got to be clear on this. God asks you to do things as a Christian. He calls you to do things. The task he's got for you is something you cannot do. Have you, do you realize that? See? You can't do it. It's impossible. Even you, you say, no, I prayed a prayer years ago. I'm following Jesus. No, still, if you decide to go this on your own, there's about a million things in the Bible. You just can't do them. What does he want you to do? He wants you to say, yes, but you can't, can't do them on your own. But there's a factor you must have, and it's this. Help me. That's what we need to ask. Because as we pray, help me. I can't do these things. I recognize my weakness. I recognize your strength. He comes in and he assists us. And he doesn't just give us assistance. He gives us himself through his Holy Spirit. Just to underline what I've been saying throughout, okay, as boldly as I can, the message today is this. God calls us as his people to find our joy more in giving than in getting. And that means living lives of such other-centered self-sacrifice that we serve with pretty much no regard with what we are going to get back. That is something that I cannot do. But that is something that God can do and has done in the most profound way. And as he sent his son, he sent his spirit to build into us the fruit of the spirit of love and self-giving love. And so Paul knows this, and so he commits the church leaders. He doesn't say to them, here you go, Ephesians, here's a big burden on your back. Do it. Make sure you do it well. He says this, verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And I want to ask you to finish with a combination of that and what I've just read. Commit ourselves to God. He's a good God. He wants blessing for us. He wants blessing for those around us. He wants glory to his name. And one of the main ways he does is he calls us to give ourselves without looking to receive.